Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. From Decrypt.co, this is the Decrypt Daily, and my name is Matthew Aaron. Today on the show, an MIT paper says voting on the blockchain is a no-no. A company that does voting on the blockchain says not so fast. A discussion about PayPal and cryptocurrency and Ethereum Classic Labs is releasing Wrapped ETC coming up today on the Decrypt Daily. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the show. Today is Wednesday, November 18th, 2020. And I don't know if you noticed, but they're coming out of the woodworks. All the people that should have bought Bitcoin a long time ago are now saying, hey, do you think I should buy some of that Bitcoin stuff? Aren't you into Bitcoin? Uh, should I buy some Bitcoin or how do you buy Bitcoin? I don't I don't know how to buy it. Can you help me buy it? Can you help me set it up? It has reached the adoption phase of the new people to buy Bitcoin at 18, 19, 20. And you're going to see it. $30,000 Bitcoin. Old group messages are starting to light up with group chat notifications of people you haven't talked to since 2017, 2018, talking about, hey, have you noticed Bitcoin is at $18,000? Ooh, what about those shit coins? What about the alts? Hey, what do you think those are going to pump? Do you think I should hodl? Do you think I should sell? Do you think we've already peaked? Are we going to see all-time highs again? All those conversations are coming out in full. And you know what? It's kind of good to see new people coming into the space. It's good to see old friends that you haven't spoke to for a while because you showed them some shit coin back in 2017 and they've been holding that bag ever since. Or maybe they called you for advice when Bitcoin was heading up to $20,000 and they bought it at 18.5. You know what? Those guys, those hodlers, they're soldiers. Welcome them back with open arms. Welcome them back with compassion. And welcome them back to talking about Bitcoin 24-7, waking up to check your portfolio in the middle of the night to see what's happening, because that's the fun of it. Let's see what those crypto prices are. Here comes the money. Here we go. Money talk. I'm recording this at 2.30 Eastern Standard Time. Bitcoin is sitting at $17,800, up 1% from yesterday, but a little caveat to that, Bitcoin already hit $18,300 plus earlier today, saw a pullback, it's working its way back up, so its 24-hour high was actually $18,300 plus, and its low was $17,300, so we are just working our way right back up. Ethereum is at $475.17, down just a little bit from yesterday. Litecoin, 73.95, up a little bit from yesterday. Chainlink, 13.33, up 4% from yesterday. And XRP, down 4% from yesterday at 29.1 cents. Total market cap for all of cryptocurrency is 497. Point, I gotta make that bigger. $8 billion. That's $497.8 billion with a BTC dominance of 66.3%. Now, I have three conversations today. Most of the news today was about Bitcoin price, and I'm going to try to have more conversations in Bitcoin price this week. I know it's hard. It is very, very hard, but I'm going to try my best. And my first conversation is with Mr. Pete Martin, CEO of Votum, which is a company in Cleveland that does voting on the blockchain. The other day, Decrypt Media published an article called Blockchain Voting Prone to Nationwide Election Failures. And it's about a paper that was published by MIT called 
going from bad to worse, from the internet voting to blockchain voting, saying that blockchain voting is a no-no. Well, Pete Martin comes and tells us why that is incorrect. Hey, Matthew, it's great to be on the show again. I really appreciate the uh, the time, and it's a pretty important topic to, to discuss right now. Look, Decrypt wanted me to cover this news. This news yesterday came out. It was blockchain voting prone to nationwide election failures, and this is a paper that came out of MIT. I don't believe it. Blockchain and voting on the blockchain is one of my favorite use cases. Voting on the blockchain is one of my favorite use cases. I want you to tell me why this is incorrect. Please tell me this is incorrect. <laughs> yeah, so uh, first of all, let me, let me say that... Uh, um, Ron Rivest, who is the MIT professor that um, co-authored this with his students, has been talking against online voting for a long time. And I have a lot of respect for Ron. He's a very smart guy. He's one of the co-creators of the RSA security technology. Um, so I don't have any issues with him as a person or his credentials. Um, I think what I have an issue with, it, which is what the paper really um, kind of falls back into this space again, is this ideal world of voting. And um, as an academic, you can talk about all the potential issues with any kind of system, any kind of a process, but there's a real world that's out there. And so a lot of the things that they talk about in the paper uh, and this five uh, issues that they have with blockchain voting uh, really address it from an ideal system perspective, which there is no ideal perspective. So let's talk about a couple of them. So they talk about there's five issues with blockchain voting. One is ballot secrecy, what they call software independence, voter verifiable ballots, contestability, and auditing. So we'll kind of just ping on each one of these real quick. So, um, and, and to be fair, um, us nor any of the other blockchain voting vendors use blockchain as the sole security technique to, to cause, you know, to, to prevent any nation state um, attacks. Uh, we think the blockchain provides so many other functions and combined with other technologies, other security technologies, we think that we make it as strong or as good as anything that exists today, particularly mail-in ballots, where there are over 70 million mail-in ballots in 2020 right now. So ballot secrecy. So there are ways to um, make sure that your ballot is secret, um, both in terms of making it anonymous as it goes through all the way through the tally process as well as um, being able to give you the ability to resist coercion. And what they're talking about in the paper is that if you're voting on your phone, you know, you are subject to potentially being coerced. Well, you know what, again, that's an, that's an ideal academic argument, it has nothing to do with blockchain, frankly. Um, and really what it speaks to is, can you have a private place where you can cash your ballot, right? And in theory, a polling place is one of those places where you can independently without assistance, cast your ballot. Um, the reality is if you looked at any of the polling places across most of the countries, it's a pretty intimidating thing walking in. So this idea of coercion, um, if you look at all the complaints that come from all of the county election officials, this never comes up. Um, so it's this infinitesimal issue that, again, is kind of an academic argument that really doesn't hold and, and blockchain has nothing to do with it. Uh, number two, this notion of software independence is, can you detect an error in the software code itself that could potentially cause an error in the election results. Blockchain does provide um, a lot of value here because it's based on math and the math has to add up. And if you have an, a well-architected blockchain system, you can detect fraud, you can detect problems in the system, and you can have them independently verified by other sources, whether it's an open source um, mechanism or not. They also talk about voter verifiable ballots. And this is where I take great exception to this paper. They believe that a 
hand-marked paper ballot is the most voter verifiable type of ballot. Problem is there's a concept in, in voting called chain of custody. And if you've got over 70 million ballots where you know, you know that you marked that ballot correctly, the minute you drop that in the mail, the minute you drop that in a poll box, you have lost chain of custody. Um, and so the vast majority of ballots that went through the system in 2020 did not have true end-to-end voter verifiability. Blockchain does provide that capability. We can create a digital chain of custody throughout the process to give you, the, the voter, a factual basis for was your ballot actually counted as exactly as you cast it? Was anything changed along the way? So that is a complete fallacy. I'm not sure kind of what, you know, why they even put that argument in there, but blockchain does provide that capability. Um, the fourth and the fifth are, uh, one is called contestability, and they kind of get into some technology around this. But from our perspective, blockchain gives you the ability to have independent authorities verify and validate every vote in real time. So you could have every political party, every candidate, election observers, the media, the public, all verifying those votes in real time as they come in, or at least have an observer node. So again, blockchain does provide incredible capability here and um, try to do that with a mail-in ballot, try to do that with a polling place, right? You can have so many observers by law and, and polling place, but you can't follow those people to the central counting office typically. Um, you can't follow your mailman to the central you know, postal facility and have it take it all the way to the central processing center. So in terms of not only just the um, contestability, but the verifiability of it is um, a huge advantage of blockchain. And then the last piece is they talk about auditing. And there's a concept in the elections business called risk-limiting audit that was developed by a gentleman by the name of Philip Stark. And a risk-limiting audit is a statistical measure to basically pull paper ballots and compare that statistical sampling to the results and see if there's a match. In fact, this is exactly what they're doing in the state of Georgia right now. But here's the issue with risk-limiting audits. Um, it doesn't tell you that that ballot that was marked by the voter was counted exactly as they intended it. And if you think about kind of post-election audits, as opposed to having all the pieces in place to have every vote verifiable as it comes in, is if you look at what happened with Enron, right? Enron was an audited, publicly audited company. Wirecard uh, Wire in Germany was a publicly audited company, but the audits happen after everything else has happened, right? It's too late at that point. So blockchain as a technology gives you the ability to mathematically validate all of the things that you want to validate as it's happening, not after the fact. And you do have the capability after the fact then as a voter to go to a public website and see that your, your vote was counted exactly as you cast it. Again, you can't do that in any other method today. Those are the big problems I have with the arguments in this paper. Well, I am definitely not a professional at voting on the blockchain, but I my, my but my assumptions were, I guess, correct uh, that it was false because you said five different criteria here and they were false. Uh, I'm gonna have to say that voting on the blockchain is still my number one use case for blockchain technology. And Pete Martin, CEO and founder of Votum and a Cleveland-based company, I want to say thank you very much for coming on the show and educating us all. Thanks, Matthew. I really appreciate the uh, the airtime. Next up, I have Joao Almeida, CTO and co-founder of OpenNode, and we're going to talk about PayPal accepting cryptocurrencies. The good, the bad, the ugly for the future. Let's see what he has to say. Hey, how's it going? Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Look, 
you guys reached out to me to talk about cryptocurrency and PayPal integration. PayPal, as we all know, is starting to sell cryptocurrency, Bitcoin, Ethereum, Litecoin, and BCH, Bitcoin Cash. You said it's not all it's cracked up to be. And I am curious, why do you say that? I mean, we look at this PayPal news with actually a positive side, like, you know, PayPal as a big traditional company is trying to just trying to remain relevant. You know, they have to remain at the forefront of digital payments if they want to keep growing. You know, we can, we can see lately, we're seeing a lot of companies like using Bitcoin to defend their modes. We are in a stage that I, we believe that money is being uh, reinvented, right? And these companies want to make sure uh, they're seen to be staying in the game. And to be honest with you, I don't think they will be the last one to join this, this race. Yeah, but what, what do you mean that it's not all this cracked out to me? Look, look, I understand that people are trying to innovate. I understand that PayPal needs to keep up with the times. I mean, you just can't have dollar offerings. You're going to have dollar, pound, euro offerings. And then if Bitcoin and Litecoin and Bitcoin Cash is part of those offerings that you need to offer, you need to offer them. It's called innovation. It's keep called keeping up with the times. But why isn't not all it's cracked up to be? You know, Bitcoin, uh, PayPal has, has a very interesting history of the platforming users, right? Even though like Bitcoin is this global currency, uh, we're kind of like also curious a little bit how they're going to work in regards to like, uh, are they going to keep their, their stance in regards to like the platform, the user. It's going to be interesting to see, you know, all these large traditional uh, companies manages the introduction of a decentralized currency, you know, and interpretable like Bitcoin. Like banks and the payment networks have been, for decades made the rules of when it comes to payments. So we are actually like interesting to see if PayPal is going to defy that in a, in a way, you know, like they did before in the past with like the payment network fees that they were able to like kind of avoid, or if they just want to like play the, the, the banks and, and the games. So I think uh, this is going to be a very, it's going to be a very interesting uh, development. So when it comes to payment and network fees, I, I kind of don't understand how you, what do you mean, like how they can like mess with that? I mean, I assume they are just a custodial service. I mean, you don't have Bitcoin when you buy it on PayPal. You just buy an IOU, you buy it at $18,000. And then if it goes down, then you have $16,000 of Bitcoin. You don't have Bitcoin. You're not going to be able to extract it. Extract it. You don't have your private keys. You know, there's no seed phases, phrases. No, so I, so I, I so I would I would assume that they buy or or custodian to a crap ton of Bitcoin. You're uh, purchasing at certain prices, and then that's it. So they already paid their fees. What what does fees have to do with anything? No, when I, when I meant fees, I mean historically, pay, PayPal when they started, they were kind of like defining the space with like the network fees and stuff. So I think right, like so they, uh, they actually fine a couple day a couple of years after like millions of dollars. So what I'm trying to say here is like. I think this is going to be an interesting um, development in the space because, yes, they are a traditional company. They have to abide by the rules, right? But they also have this history of like kind of defying the big guys. And, you know, so this might be actually good for the industry if they, because they're big enough to have a stance, to have a voice, to kind of like go against it. So, uh, but yeah, you're right. Like in regards to the, the private keys, they literally just, I think they're just starting with a digital cash wallet at the moment, allowing you to like just buy you know, and sell the cryptocurrencies. Uh, they announced on Q1, they will be able to like start providing merchant, merchant services, right? But I think on an initial phase, it's gonna be uh, in a, within their closed ecosystem, right? So yeah, it's not everything is roses, but I think it's a start, you know? It's a, it's a way for their 315 million user base to start dipping their toes into Bitcoin and be more interested about it. And eventually when you feel comf comfortable about it, you might just move as well to a, a traditional exchange and like custody your coins. At least that's, that's what I hope. <laughs>
So how do you think they're, they're going to define the space? I guess that, that's it. I mean, look, we, we know what they're doing. We know what you just said right now and how they could evolve. What do you see the, the end game for this? Here's my, here's my end game for this, is that banks and institutions and traditional finance and things like PayPal are going to control the majority of Bitcoin because the mom and pop are going to be able to buy it. And we're going to have billions, if not trillions of dollars come into Bitcoin. And the majority of Bitcoin holders are now going to be traditional finance, which everybody's going to have IOUs. Nobody's going to have control over their private keys. Therefore, they and the Fed are going to control Bitcoin. What's your future with this? No, I mean, you, you, I, I don't think you're far away. What might be the most popular way to store Bitcoins, right? To rely on a, custod on a custodian. But at the end of the day, I think what's important here is to have the option. And I think that's what Bitcoin brings to people is like giving the option for you to custody those funds and make them uncomfortable, right? Like no one can take them off. Or if you don't want, you can give your, your funds to a custodian. But I think what's important at the end of the day is that you having the option to do that. We know that starting now, PayPal is not offering that option, but I'm sure eventually as they figure it out, especially the regulations and, and the, they, they start adding more, more partners to, within their uh, cryptocurrency uh, ecosystem, I'm sure they will be able to provide that. So at the end of the day, for me personally, it's about choice. Do you want to store your coins? Yes, you have an option. If you don't want, you're reinventing the wheel, right? You're just going back to the same old system, but there are people that can take advantage of that choice. And I think at the end of the day, that's, that's the most important thing. All right. Yes or no question. PayPal, Bitcoin, cryptocurrencies is bullish. Yes or no? Oh, yes, definitely bullish. Yeah. PayPal, cryptocurrencies, bullish in five years. Yes or no? Uh, yes, because I, I think as PayPal gets seen, another big players will, they're paying attention and they, they're just ready, ready to step on. Joel Almeida, CTO and co-founder of OpenNode. Thanks for coming on and chatting with us. Thank you. And finally... Ethereum Classic is making wrapped ETC. You know what? I want to be totally honest with everybody. I don't know what wrapped anything is. I've never used it. Um, and kind of kind of silly. Maybe I'm a little bit behind the times here. There's all kinds. I just checked today. There's wrapped BTC. There's wrapped BNB. There's compound wrapped BTC. There's all kinds of things going on. But what does wrapped ETC mean? What does it do for Ethereum Classic? And does Ethereum Classic have any legs to stand on after so many 51% attacks? Well, I'm going to talk to James Wu, head of Ethereum Classic Labs. We're going to talk wrapped ETC, 51% attacks, and the future of F Classic. Great. Hello, everyone. This is James Wu from ETC Labs. I'm doing well. Thank you. You are launching WETC or wrapped ETC. First, I have two questions for you. One, what is wrapped ETC? ethereum classic and what is this whole wrapped thing wrapped btc wrapped bnb compound wrapped btc like it's just getting kind of kind of confusing can you explain this for us basically what we do is we issue a smart contract then you can send your etc into that smart contract then the system system will automatically create a erc20 version of ethereum classic to you it's one-to-one -one, so you can basically deposit one etc and get one WETC. In that way, it will help you, you know, using the ERC-20 version of Ethereum Classic and doing different kind of uh, business on the Ethereum ecosystem. Basically, it's kind of a way for a native asset to enter into other protocol ecosystem. Okay. So again, I, I'm trying to, I'm kind of confused. Why would I want to wrap my ETC up with WETC or F with, what, what is the point for it? Uh, every ecosystem has different value. Uh, for example, right now, we think there will be a lot of use cases on the top of the Ethereum ecosystem. Uh, we got DAX, like, you know, swapping and landing, liquidity mining. So what we will do is kind of, you, you can kind of wrap your uh, ETC into WETC and you can trade on Uniswap. 
then for example you trade for usdt then you know let's say a, a kind of like a sushi swap or, or sake swap or whatever they support a trading pair about you know etc wetc to usdt then you can deposit that kind of trading pairs to to mining the, the token you want to mine it's basically a, a erc20 token that we're entering to a certain ecosystem and you can use different service and product again i i apologize i'm not understanding what is <laughs> okay so let me let me try to see if i can summarize this you have etc in the wrapped etc the 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 problem is i'm understanding is i already can trade etc i already can put it at different places i can go on to uh different swaps or, or what have you and, and 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 buy my different tokens what does wetc do that etc can't do yeah the, the point is like etc or other what, whatever other asset like Cosmos or Polkadot, they are not ERC-20 token, right? So, but, you know, on the Ethereum ecosystem for other product you want to use, like Uniswap, Compound, or, you know, uh, MakerDAO, they only support ERC-20 asset. I so get what it. you will do, yeah, so what you will do is transfer your asset to ERC-20 asset, then you use that into that ecosystem. All right, understood. Thank you very much. All right, cool. So now we're going to have WETC. When are you guys going to have WETC launch? Actually, we already finished all the process about, you know, uh, developing and testing the platform. So ETC Lab cooperate with Transafe about doing that. So we actually will launch WETC, I think, next Tuesday. So you will see that, you know, uh, see the launch, I think, on, uh, you know, November the 24th. Wonderful. What do you expect to accomplish with uh, WETC? I know you're trying to get more people to use Ethereum Classic, but Ethereum Classic has been plagued with problems, you know, 51% attacks, multiple 51% attacks. Uh, I know you guys are trying to mitigate this with mess and figure out how to uh, stop the 51% attacks, but it seems like Ethereum Classic is a risky thing to hold right now, considering we don't know if the network is even secure. What are you trying to accomplish with WETC and can people have confidence in your network? I mean, these are two separate things. With the implementation of mass, I think we, I think we entirely prevent from 51% attack from happening again. Uh, this is because, you know, we uh, add a cost of the attacker basically saying you want to reorg 3,000 block, then you have to pay $20 million, which is in- impossible to happen. You know, basically that is the way for us to prevent double spend. And after we implemented it, uh, the 51% attack never happened. The other people want to try to buy hard rate on NASH and try to attack them well network. Uh, they, but they didn't you know become successful about doing that but they do attack other network like green and others but you know etc is super secure right now so that's the first answer to the first question wetc is separate part so what we are doing is i think you know a lot of people are stick to proof of stake a lot of people believe that etc have a fixed cap which is 21 you know 210 million you know uh, total number of the tokens etc have a lot of value on, on that side but what ETC don't have is a strong and a bigger ecosystem. So what we are doing is actually create more function for a certain classic token. They want to hold a native asset, but we want to make sure that token is also useful. So that's why we create WETC and try to make sure people use ETC, then ETC become more valuable in the future. Thank you for explaining that, sir. James Wu, founder and chairman of ETC Labs. Thank you for coming on the show and explaining one wrapped anything, uh, the future of WETC and the launch and just being a good guy and answering all my questions. Great, thanks. Hey everyone, thank you for listening to this episode of the Decrypt Daily. Hey everyone, I haven't had a review on Apple Podcasts since October 25th. I wanna say thank you for everybody who put reviews on there, but I need more. 
and I need more because the more reviews I get, the more people that smash that like button, the subscribe button, and puts comments in the comment section of Apple Podcasts, the more that Apple's algorithm recommends our show when people put in BTC or Bitcoin or education or news for cryptocurrency. So if you would, please take a couple minutes, go rate our show, leave us a comment, make sure to subscribe and share with your friends. And if you need to get hold of me, it's Matthew Aaron at decrypt.co or Matthew Aaron at decryptmedia.com. I'll see you tomorrow. Happy hodling, everybody.